Without further ado, please welcome Emily Hurricane, Hazel Gaynor, and Zaylop Bodadali. Thank you. Hello everyone, um, it's lovely to see you all here this morning. Um, I'll start off by introducing myself. I'm Zainab Aladil, I'm a presenter and reporter with RT Nationwide, and I'm happy to be here talking with Emily and Hazel today about their books. So I'll start off by introducing Emily Harrikan. Um, she's a journalist and author. She has written features for the Sunday Independent for 15 years, as well as Image Magazine, Condé Nast Traveller, and Women and Home. Emily is the author of a memoir titled How to Really Be a Mother and eight works of fiction, including three best-selling novels about the Guinness sisters. She lives in Dublin with her family. Hazel Gaynor is an award-winning New York Times, USA Today, and Irish Times best-selling author of historical fiction, including her debut, The Girl Who Came Home, for which she received 2015, the 2015 RNA Historical Novel of the Year Award, the Lighthouse Keeper's Daughters was shortlisted for the 2019 HWA Gold Crown Award, and The Bird in the Bamboo Cage was shortlisted for the 2020 Irish Book Awards. She's published in 20 languages in 27 countries. Hazel lives in Kildare with her family. So let's talk about the books you have here today. So Emily, what inspired you to write An Invitation to the Kennedys? So I started writing <clears throat> books about three of the Guinness sisters. So there are an enormous number of Guinnesses. I'm, I'm sure you all know that. There are banking Guinnesses, brewing Guinnesses, clerical Guinnesses, loads of them. I kind of honed in on three in particular, who are three sisters who were very intertwined with Irish life. Um, and they are the glorious Guinness girls, was what the press called them in the kind of 1920s and 30s, Eileen, Maureen and Una Guinness. And I wrote three novels about them. Well, I wrote two novels about them. Then I kind of melded them with their wider family and began writing about them and also their cousin, Honor Guinness. And from that, I segued into what I found a really interesting kind of pocket of history that the Kennedy family, so JFK's family, and obviously we associate the Kennedys with America. And then I kind of had known, but had never really thought about the fact that in 1938, the Kennedy family spent a kind of, you know, 18 month period in London, in UK, when the dad of the family, so Joe Kennedy, was appointed ambassador to the court of King James. So he was sent over by Roosevelt, basically to get rid of him, because he was a royal pain, and Roosevelt could see that he was edging his way towards making a bid for the presidency. So he gave him a poisoned chalice, which was the ambassadorship, and he sent him off to London, and he was like, just make sure that America does not enter the war that is clearly brewing in Europe, and definitely make sure that you do not give any indication that America will support England if and when this war happens. So he was sent over to do that. And there's a very funny story about him kind of being made to wear knee breeches, like these awful kind of like short sort of pants that men had to wear formally at the time. And the president laughing himself sick because he was so bandy legged. And he was like, this will do perfectly. He kind of hated him at this stage. So he sent him over. Joe Kennedy arrived with most of his family, not JFK or the older brother, but the rest of his, the younger siblings. And one of them in particular, 
Kathleen Kennedy was a massive roaring success in the kind of gossip columns and English kind of aristocratic circles at the time. And everybody adored her because she was American and she was very fresh and she was, you know, not kind of like English girls of that time. And she had this very kind of wild year in which she met and fell in love with the man who she later married and there was huge opposition to the marriage all of which was really interesting to me. And it was that really, it was this intersection of this Kennedy life, having always thought that Kennedys just belonged in America, with the lives of the Guinness girls who I had previously been writing about, because they were kind of, you know, doing the same parties, same scene at the same time. And I just found it irresistible as a writer of historical fiction. You know, that's the kind of thing, like some small thing leaps out at you and you go, that's really interesting and funny and a little microcosm in which to examine the bigger, broader things that are happening at the time. So that was it. And we'll delve into the characters a little bit later. Um, so Hazel, The Last Lifeboat, what is that about? Can you give us some context? Yeah, so, um, and, and fascinating, Emily has just said it's a small thing that generates this huge story. Um, and good morning and welcome, by the way. Thank you, thank you all for being here with us. And, um, so The Last Lifeboat is um, set in 1940, uh, during the second, the second year of the Second World War. Um, and I had written about war before. I'd written about the First World War. I had written about the Second World War um, in The Bird in the Bamboo Cage, a story of um, British school children and their teacher who were interned in a Japanese prisoner of war camp in China um, at the outbreak of war. I thought I had sort of told all the stories of war I wanted to tell. And when I was researching possible ideas for my next book, I felt that I wanted to explore, um, I'm always trying to find the unknown parts of a very well-known piece of history. Um, and something like the Second World War is so wide-reaching, there are so many different parts of that story, that event, it touched people's lives in so many different ways. And I was trying to find a piece of that history that surprised me. Um, and I found one word, and it was in a document um, held at the Imperial War Museum archives in London, and I was reading about evacuees. And I think we're all very familiar with the image of young children with their um, gas mask, their little suitcase, standing on a railway platform, you know, the railway children at Classic. And that was the first wave of mass evacuation. Um, over three million children were evacuated from Britain's towns and cities to the countryside in a uh, program called Operation Pied Piper. That was at the start of war in 1939. Um, and I thought that was the story of evacuees. But reading this document, I found one word, and that word was sea evacuees. And I had never heard that word, and I was like, what's a sea evacuee? Well, it's obviously, um, as I now know, uh, children who were sent overseas. So not just within Britain, but to um, overseas dominions, in the, as they were called at the time, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, um, Jamaica. And this was just astonishing to me because it, I couldn't get my head around, as a parent, making a decision not only to evacuate your children, but overseas. And I read on um, about this programme which was um, a, a government-run program called the Children's Overseas Reception Board. 
And I thought I was surprised, and then I read an account of one of these evacuee ships that was torpedoed in the Atlantic en route to Canada from Liverpool. And I literally got goosebumps because this was such a huge part of the war, and I'd never heard of it. And I researched this ship called the City of Benares and the story of the children and everybody involved in that um, tragedy. And then I read about a lifeboat that was uh, full of survivors but was missed in the rescue operation. Um, and that really was where my, um, I suppose, laser historical novelist lens went because I felt within that story of the whole program, but particularly this lifeboat with survivors who were believed to have gone down with the ship and were lost in the Atlantic for eight days. This little microcosm, as you've just said, Emily, of human uh, struggle in one boat in this enormous body of water just encapsulated everything for me that I think a story of war represents. And, and I've told a fictional account of a ship that mirrors the city of Benares and some of the people, and the story of parents back in London who were faced with this impossible decision. Do you keep your child with you in London at the risk of the Blitz bombing, finding your home, or do you evacuate them somewhere safe? And at a time of war, really nowhere is safe. Um, and that was the inspiration behind The Last Lifeboat. And you've touched on this, but both books are either based on or have elements of the realities people had to face during that time. What's the research process like? Do you have to read a lot of documented first accounts? Um, so at this stage, the research, so this is, the, so this is set in 1938, and I have written so two previous novels set in the kind of late 20s and 1930s. <clears throat> so I kind of have the background pretty well down at this stage. So it's not really a question of reading the what happened when kind of, you know, larger account of the history of the time. It really is finding little details that, you know, kind of leap out at me. Um, and for this novel, one of the things that really leapt out at me is when I was reading the diaries of Henry Chips Challen, who is the most mm -hmm. unbelievably egregious, social climbing, snarky, narky, demanding, judgmental, vicious, diarist you have ever come across, the American husband of Honor Guinness, who is the sister of Bridget Guinness, who is one of the main characters in this. He writes the nastiest things about absolutely everybody, but he's a brilliant chronicler because he goes out all the time and he meets everybody and he comes home and he writes poisonous little things about them in his diary. So reading his diary, I read a detail of the coming out party, like this debutante ball of Bridget Guinness, and there is in it the little detail that she is sitting beside at this party, Billy Cavendish, who was the heir to the Duke of Devonshire. And then a few pages later, I'm reading about the debutante ball of Kathleen Kennedy, who was the other main character in this, Kit Kennedy, uh, sister of JFK. And at her debutante ball, she's sitting beside Prince Friedrich of Austria, 
who later married Bridget Guinness, and Billy Cavendish, who Bridget was sitting next to, was the one who later married Kit Kennedy. So that made me laugh because I just kind of, you know, you see this world in which the only duty of a young girl is to get married and to get married as well as she possibly can. And everybody around these, you know, lovely young women is conniving to seat them beside the most eligible man possible. And they're all sitting back going, you know, is this going to work? Is this match going to work out? And I just really loved the idea that they had, between them, kind of siphoned off these two young men who they then went on to marry after, you know, lots and lots of upheaval and barriers in the way of both of those marriages. So that's the kind of thing. It's not the big stuff. It's the little stuff. It's really, truly the small things. And then it's also finding a framework that will support the imagination as well, because not everything is true. It's historical fiction rather than history. Um, it's a story with a narrative. So a lot of the story is invented, but it needs to work within a very solid framework that will contain it. For me, that's what needs to happen. And yourself, how do you balance the historical accuracy with the compelling narrative? Well, that question. <laughs> <laughs> the fact or fiction, where do you stop? Um, and, I'm, you know, as Emily said, um, this is a fabulous book, by the way. I, I read this and it is, it's so entertaining. This is also a fabulous book at the risk of, you know... I'm loving the room. Book fabulous. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, look, we're writing historical fiction. I think, I, you know, that's the first and foremost. This is not... We're not setting out to write a factual historical historic account of these things. That's a decision that we've both made as writers and all historical novelists do. So really you lean into that. And for me, it's about um, my um, inquisitiveness as a, as a writer and to, to you know, imagine these past lives, these past events and to do the research and to understand where am I? You know, what were the pressing issues of the time? How did people get from A to B? Were they inhibited by what they wore? You know, what were the day-to-day, -day, the small, irritating things that bothered people, that the same as bother us now? And that's how you unlock this piece of history and, and make it feel relatable to, you know, contemporary readers. And it's about doing your research so you're comfortable. So as, as Emily said, you know, once you've been in a space a few times, you kind of know, you know, what, what, how did people speak? What were the social etiquettes of the time? So you're sort of good with that. Mm. And then it's finding the specifics. And it's, <clears throat> I suppose it's knowing when to stop researching mm. because this isn't a history lesson. And I know people sometimes don't read historical fiction because they go, oh, I hated history in school. It's like, Good, come to us. <laughs> we will unlock history for you. Because it's written in a narrative form. It's entertaining. It's engaging. It's, it's what you want when you're watching a period drama on the TV. It's that in, an, in a book form. You know, so it's, I often say it's adding, it's adding color. It's adding all this sensory detail to a static black and white photograph. Of course, people didn't walk around in black and white. And if you've ever seen any colorized images... Um, there was an incredible project a couple of years ago. Um, was Peter Jackson involved in it? There was a film where they colorized footage of the trenches um, in World War I. And my goodness, I mean, it was... Once you see the visceral blood in red in the trenches near a, a, a dead soldier, I mean, it's... I don't know why we sometimes feel this sort of distance mm -hmm. from these events. Once you see it in color, 
it totally changes the perspective. And that's what I always have in my mind when I'm writing a novel. I'm trying to re, um, recolor, if you like, these pieces of history. So it's about finding the small. It's trying to find those uh, diaries, anything first person. Um, I found uh, this incredible set of diaries called Mass Observation, where people had written essentially... Um, it was the equivalent of Twitter, Instagram of the time, you know, people moaning about the war and the government and impositions that had been put on their lives. And, you know, you look at that and there was humour, there was, you know, people desperate because they couldn't see their boyfriend, you know, and there's this bloody war going on. And it's just, it makes you realise that those people, and as we are, we're, we're all human beings and it's evergreen emotions that span history. And that's why the history... I suppose it's the foundation and the fiction is what I hope, anyway, makes it relatable and accessible and entertaining and hopefully then brings people into that history that they might otherwise have, you know, sort of had a terrible memory of a school teacher making them recite dates of kings and queens and mm. things like that. So that, that's the balance for me, yeah. the, the fiction and the foundation of the history. And you've both done a great job of bringing the history to now. But um, I wanted to ask, in your book, you do a great job of showcasing how a lot of the women's political opinions were formed by the men around them. Why was that so important to showcase? So I really, truly, like one of the things that has really interested me through all of the historical fiction that I've written, and I wrote contemporary fiction before coming to historical fiction, and really, truly, I mean, exactly as Hazel said, the things we want and don't want and hope for are pretty much the same. I mean, you know, evergreen human emotions is literally it. These things don't change very much. But what hugely changes, obviously, is the circumstances of people's lives, and in particular, the circumstances of women's lives. And it just, like, I found it quite mesmerizing to go back and look at the thing that, you know, I knew to be true, which was that women had very little agency in the 1910s, 20s, 30s, right up until the Second World War, an awful lot changed during the Second World War for women. But immediately before that, you are looking at women who, so in the case of the women who I write about, whether they're Guinnesses or Kathleen Kennedy, they're really, you know, they're really smart. They're highly kind of adaptable and evolved humans with a great deal of ability, with a very small stage on which to act out that ability. And in a sense, the fact that they came from these really wealthy and privileged backgrounds gave them freedom, but also took freedom from them. There is arguably more freedom to be had in the life of somebody who, you know, needs to kind of keep a house going and, you know, kind of keep a family going and react to the limited circumstances of their time in comparison with somebody who genuinely, truly had one job. So, you know, you are 18 and you are born a Guinness. And if you're lucky, as they were, you're also stunningly beautiful as well as really rich. You have one job, which is to marry as well as you can. And the frustration of that has really hit me at every single point that I turn when I look at the circumstances of their lives. I don't feel that they achieved on any level what they were capable of because nobody expected them to. All they wanted and expected them to do was to marry, to have a family, to run a big house, you know, and then maybe dabble in the arts and have a literary salon or whatever. Um, 
But that really, like, is that That's enough? Great, though, doesn't it? I mean, well, yes, it does when you're, like, you know, doing the school run and working and also trying to get food into the house and all of these things. It sounds amazing to think that you would have nothing to do but to invite <laughs> a few artists around. I could definitely do that, but I couldn't do it every single day. And I definitely wouldn't like to think that I had nothing else to do. So that really, truly, like, their political opinions were formed by men. Everything around them was formed by men, formed by their fathers, first of all, and then by their husbands. And to an extent, they inhabited the roles that they were handed by the men in their life and the men in society. And obviously not every woman put up with this. There were some who were amazing mold breakers and burst right out of that. And they were incredible leaders in the suffragette movement and in socialism and all sorts of other things. And they are massively admirable. But they weren't the norm. Most women, and I always think, what would I have done at that time? And there's a really horrible part of me that goes, I would probably just have gone along with it. I would have inhabited the role that was given to me rather than bursting right out of it throwing myself under the king's horse or whatever. You know, I would have done what was expected. They did what was expected. And what I'm interested in is the point that this rubs up against their inner lives. How frustrating is it if your canvas is wife, mother, daughter? I mean, that's not enough. What does that do to you internally? How does that affect your relationships with the men in your life? What do you feel about your husband if you know that in the world that you live in, he has all the power and you don't. Like, how does that affect the way you feel about him? How does that affect the love that exists between you? How does it affect you as the mother of a son, of a daughter? These things really, really, really. So it's the psychology, exactly as Hazel said, it's coloring in the bits around the black and white photograph or within the black and white photograph. And for me, the psychology is always the primary thing. I know what people did because history tells me what they did. Why did they do it is what I want to know. Why did Bridget Guinness marry Prince Friedrich of Austria when she initially had no interest in him? And that is very demonstrable. And then at some point during the war, he got really injured. She went to care for him because she had trained as a nurse at that point. And later they got married. What's the bit that made her change her mind about him? She thought he was as boring as could be, and he was boring. And then suddenly, she married him, and they went on and had five kids. Why did she marry him? You know, what was it about him being vulnerable and injured, and also at that stage very undesirable, because it was war and he was Austrian, and he was pretending not to be Prince Friedrich of Austria at that stage. He was George Macefield, a farmer. So, you know, all of these things happen. Why do people do what they do is the thing that really drives me. It's that curiosity. So there's definitely strong characters in that book, and I really enjoyed the way you portrayed uh, women in terms of their class and their opinions. But I also wanted to ask, and I'll bring this question to you, Hazel, um, what characters did you find challenging and what characters did you find exciting to portray? Great question. Yeah. Um, and, and actually, my story is really told from the point of view of two women who meet once and yet their lives are completely intersected from, from that moment on. Um, one woman, Alice, is ultimately in the lifeboat with the surviving children. Uh, and the other is a woman, Lily, who's in London with the Blitz happening and she has made a decision to evacuate her children. Um, and I suppose like Emily, you know, I've, I've always wanted to write strong women and women who do 
unexpected things, um, sort of extraordinary things uh, in extraordinary circumstances. And I think particularly for an, a novel of war, we historically have only heard about war from a male point of view. So I've been really fascinated um, to explore war from a woman's point of view. And what does that mean? Often it's the domestic, it's the everyday, and how, does, how do you balance being a woman alone um, and making that decision to, to send your children to safety? So Lily was entirely fictional. She's really a composite of the ordinary woman. Um, she's me, you know, she's a mother. She's trying to keep her family safe and loved um, and, and has to make this unfathomable decision and actually what I what I thought a lot when I was writing Lily is I think we look back at history and events like the war the wars and somehow feel that people then were somehow better prepared mm. to cope or to you know we talk about the blitz spirit and you know this sort of um will all be great sort of attitude and I think that's very much a you know us looking back obviously things at the time Imagine now if somebody came to you and said, okay, you've got a decision to make. You can either send your kids away or you can keep them here. What are you going to do? And I need you to figure that out by next week. No more than we could easily make that decision did people that it happened to at the time. So I was very conscious of that and really wanted to write a, an ordinary but extraordinary woman's story that encapsulates all of those extraordinary women. Um, and I actually consciously made Lily a woman who had hoped to do very different things in her life. She's very studious. She has mathematical talents, um, but life hasn't taken her in that direction as life didn't for so many women. So her role has become being the, the wife, the mother, the homekeeper. But she still harbors these thoughts, hopes, dreams of doing something more than that with her life. So that's her story. She's very fictional. Um, Alice is based on a real woman, a credible lady called Mary Cornish, who was in the lifeboat that was lost at sea. And being the only woman in the lifeboat was tasked really with the welfare of the children in the lifeboat. Mary Cornish was a music teacher um, from London and had volunteered um, when these overseas evacuees were taken parents were encouraged not to go with them because obviously they were needed on the home front. Um, and so nurses, teachers, you know, people in those sorts of positions were asked to volunteer. And Mary Cornish volunteered to be an evacuee escort. Um, and my character, Alice, is very much based on her. And how do you sort of reconcile this, putting your hand up, doing your bit, obviously hoping everything's just going to go as planned and suddenly you're in crisis mode um, and what do you do and a lot of the book for me in forming the characters was what would you do you know in are you the person who copes are you the person who takes the lead are you the person who totally withdraws and retreats into themselves and just wants it all to go away um, so she was fascinating to research and to write there's not much written about her as often people who end up being heroic are she was very humble and shy and really didn't want any of the fuss and attention that followed her afterwards um so again Alice is a bit of a composite of, of her and then my imagination and sort of 
adding facets to Alice's life to help with the structure and the, the narrative of the story. Um, and then the children, the children were fascinating to write because they were the ones who didn't have a voice at the time. Um, they have talked about their experience and there were incredible survivor accounts that I read where you get astonishing detail of them, you know, sucking a button from their coat to stimulate saliva when they couldn't get water and these amazing small details. So at the time, the children's voices really were suppressed. Um, they didn't make the decisions. They were told, you're going here, you're doing that, you're going there. Um, so I kind of, I suppose, used my children when they were younger and imagined those interactions with an adult and what what is it they're thinking about? And they obviously think, this is great adventure. You know, here we are, we're going to get <laughs> rescued by the Navy. This is going to be great when we get home because children are so black and white, they don't catastrophize. So you've got Alice catastrophizing in the lifeboat, everybody thinking this is horrendous. The kids are just going, great, I'm going to have this brilliant story to tell everyone. And it's the sort of contrast. So it's really interesting to play that innocence against the dread um, and then the sort of what's going on with the mother back in London. So really different characters um, and lots of visual, I do little mood boards to help me imagine. I write quite visually and I'm always imagining this will absolutely get adapted into a TV series. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, okay, you can be them. Um, and it really helps me uh, sort of imagine, the, you know, who are the kids who's, Mary Cornish was obviously my steer for Alice, and then lots of women just sort of going about daily life. Um, and I, I just find it fascinating, and I think that's why I love writing fiction, because you can get those real um, people, but then let your imagination go and put all your fears into them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Great therapy. <laughs> well, I can't wait to see the TV show. <laughs> Neither can I. You're all very welcome to the premiere. <laughs> Uh, and Emily, I wanted to ask, what conversations um, do you hope that your book sparks with readers? Good question. Um, I think the conversation about women, definitely. Yeah. You know, I think that that is important because I think that, you know, I feel our job is not done yet. I think that there is definitely more that we can do in terms of opening up possibilities for everybody, women, but also men, you know. And I think looking back and going, well, it's not that long ago that these were very limited and well-defined options and anything outside of the wife-mother role was weird. Um, it's, not long, it's not that long ago that that was true. We've come a really long way from there. Can we go further? How much further? And how fast can we go? I think that that is interesting. I think it's also, I mean, I was very conscious writing these books. So they're set, as I said, in the kind of primarily in the 1920s when the characters are very young adults and then the 1930s when they're slightly older adults. And I was thinking an awful lot about my own family, you know, the kind of the women in my life. So my grandmother was born the same year as Eileen Guinness, who's, you know, the kind of um, elder of the three Guinness sisters who I wrote about originally. She was the one who lived at Luttrellstown. Um, so she, her life spanned basically the, you know, the whole of that century. She was born in 1904 and she died in 1995, I think it was. So she had a very long life. Um, 
and born the same year as my grandmother. And you're kind of thinking, you know, obviously my grandmother was not born into a family anything like the Guinnesses, you know, like she was born the daughter of a school teacher in Roscommon. I mean, it was, you know, it was nothing like, but I just really feel very strongly that, you know, as I say, the circumstances, the limitations were reasonably across the board. And I think of her life and what she was able to do and how much changed in the course of her life. And then, you know, obviously how much changed in the world outside them. I mean, you know, they lived through the First World War, the Second World War, you know, the 1960s and everything that brought. I mean, it was a century of, you know, massive upheaval and change. And I like, you know, so I like us to look back at that and go, this all happened in a very short space of time. Where are we now? I also think that it should, I feel that if I've done it right, then what I would love is exactly as Hazel was saying, somebody who thought history was kind of boring because it was done. And I've heard people saying this, why do we care about history? It's happened. It's over. You know, we can't change it. And you can do the whole, well, we can learn from it. But I think it's much easier and, and more compelling if you can show people that it was living at the time and that it still has an impact now. And if they can really feel that by finding themselves in history, as it were, as opposed to looking back and being vaguely bored by something that is finished and over. So I love the idea that somebody would read this. What I want when I read historical fiction is to be left with the really vivid sense of a particular era and a whole lot of questions. And every, you know, sometimes people who have read the books tell me that they go off down rabbit holes of researching characters who might be kind of, you know, minor characters within the book. So for example, Chips Channon, who is not a massive character in this book, but he is very much kind of there as part of the directing background of the book, because as I say, these diaries of his, so married to Honor Guinness, he had this great vantage point on everything that happened in society and government in the 1930s and 40s. He was an MP, so it's not just that he knows all the dukes and you know, the crown prince of this, and God, did he love a crown prince. I mean, salivating. No matter how deposed the royalty, no matter how far from an actual throne, like, you know, Italian princes and princesses, he had absolutely no power. He still, like, totally loved them. But he also had a very good vantage point. Because he was an MP, what was happening in Parliament, in politics at this time. And I love the fact that, you know, people would kind of go, who the hell was he? And try and find out more about him. And that they would go, up, go off on their own journeys of discovery about people who kind of sparked their interest, who I've created as a character, and then they pursue as a living person. And the idea that this opens up in some kind of way, without being pompous and overstating any of it, that it opens up a little bit of their interest in the particular era. And they go, okay, you know, exactly as Hazel was saying, you know, these were real people who didn't know what they were doing. And it's only afterwards that we dignify the whole thing by going, you know, this decision that you made changed the course of history, or you were involved in this, you know, extraordinary life-changing event. They were just people doing what they did and making decisions based on pretty much nothing, hoping that they might turn out right, and then we judge them afterwards as interesting or not. 
<laughs> and on that, I'm sure we might have some aspiring authors who may want to tell stories about historical events in the audience. Um, what advice would you have for someone who either finds it daunting to start? Because it's a lot of research. Like We can't underestimate that. It's a lot of research. What advice do you have for someone who wants to start writing but doesn't know where? Don't do it. <laughs> question, no, do do it. <laughs> um, I think, you know, don't be intimidated by it is what I would say. There is a classic line that says, write what you know. No, I totally, I mean, I have to totally disagree because I think what I have written and I presume what Emily has written is write what you want to know more about, you know, and you don't have to be um, an expert to be fascinated and fascination is what drives a novel so you're gonna have to sit with this for a very long time uh, you know whether it's written over the course of a year or whether it's written over the course of two five ten years hopefully you're still gonna be at events talking about this book either you know because it's been made into a tv show finally <laughs> um or because you're talking about something else and you, so you have to really be fascinated by this that's the best piece of advice i would give to somebody thinking about writing something set from a period of the past um be really inquisitive be really nosy be fascinated by that don't try and jump onto a you know that's cool at the minute you know let's write about that and after five minutes in you're like jeepers you know why is this cool you know this is the most dry thing so I think find something that really excites you or bothers you um, or that you have questions about and and don't be intimidated by it I mean my first novel you know starry-eyed debut novelist hadn't a clue didn't know anybody in the business don't know what I was at um, was about the Titanic um, now, there's been quite a few things written about the Titanic. Yeah, it's a big one to take on. Yeah, there literally. was a movie. Um, <laughs> no, so I sort of, no pun intended, launched myself into researching everything to do with Titanic. And I was terrified that I was going to get it wrong and I was going to get snotty emails saying, well, you couldn't have possibly gone from B deck to C deck. <laughs> promenade deck. Because, you know, that's just ridiculous. Um, turns out I didn't, I got it all right. Um, it was something about a Bon Jovi poster in a side story that I got terribly wrong. But anyway, that's, for, that's a story for another day. Now you want to know why Bon Jovi has anything to do with the Titanic, you have to read the book. Anyway, um, I digress. It, it really, I think, is about being inquisitive um, and being, um, you know, being a, a historian for a while um, and, and just find what it is you need to find don't be intimidated by it you know an expert in anything was once a total novice so become an expert um to the extent you need to in order to write your book but the research is really you know that's your foundation you have to want to tell a story if you're writing historical fiction so you can't forget the story you know stuff has to happen um characters have to live almost beyond the page so your, your novelist's um, work is, is as much as the historian's work. But, you know, go for it um, and just go and don't be afraid to go to archives, to ring up experts. People love telling you everything they know. You ring this, I'm an author and I'm writing a book about this. They're like, oh, let's meet for coffee. I'll tell you all my stuff. So, you know, you don't have to come with a badge of honor that says I've written 50 books. You know, I'm an 
I'm a writer and I'm, I'm interested in this. I believe you know about it. Could we meet? Could we talk? Do you have any documents? Where will I go? You know, just do the work and, and enjoy it because hopefully you're going to be with it for a long time. Some brilliant chunks of advice there. Um, and on that note, I believe we may have question time for one or two questions. <clears throat> if there's anybody who has any pressing questions in mind. Or even unpressing. Yeah, <laughs> true, true. <laughs> there's one there. Hi, uh, that, that, it's fabulous to hear you talk, and thanks a million. I'm just curious about using real names within historical fiction. How, what is your... Um, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Is it a good idea? Does it get you into difficulties in any areas? And the other thing is, when do you stop your research? Or do you ever stop your research? Mm -hmm. Or do you ever do too much research? Do you want to do the names ones? Since I'll do the name ones. Okay, seeing as... So, obviously, I have put lots of very recognisable names of very real people into my novels. So, like, two things. First thing is, like, historical fiction... And fiction is very much, you know, the operative thing. I am not claiming that this is fact. But within that, if you are going to use the names of real people and to some extent the circumstances of their lives, you also have to be respectful um, and you have to be conscious. I don't think, you know, you can't make people do things that they didn't do. Um, you know, like... You can't make somebody marry someone they didn't marry, have a baby they didn't have. You know, you can't. So I, what I try and do is remain true to the known circumstances of people's lives. But then within that, the stuff that happens in their heads, I think I am 100%. Once I have said this is historical fiction, I feel now that I am able to do what I want to do with the contents of their head. Um, what I have a particular hatred of is biography that pretends it can tell me what's going on in someone's head. So there's a biography of Princess Diana that I really, like a Tina Fey, anyway, like, like a Tina Brown, rather, not Tina Fey. You know, it's purporting to tell me what Diana is thinking at any one moment, and it really annoys me because there is no way that she knows what Diana was thinking. She can make it up and she can suppose, but she absolutely cannot tell us as fact this is what Diana was thinking, unless it was written down as a diary, and it wasn't. So I think that if I have said I'm writing historical fiction, I don't have the same limits as biography would have. The contents of my characters' heads, I'm free to do what I want with that. So I am very, you know, and I do, as I say, try to be also respectful to the fact that these were real people with family who are still alive, who I have sometimes been told in certain circumstances, think I was way too kind <laughs> to the people that I write about, and that some of them were much more monstrous characters than I have made them out to be. But then, you know, if you're going to live with a character, you need to like the character, even if this particular person, you know, was known. For example, Maureen Guinness was famously difficult and rude and snobbish, also super smart and really mesmerizing. But, you know, like, I love her as a character. I think she's amazing. Occasionally, I hear from people related to her down the line that they think I'm much too nice and that she was really much nastier than that. That's okay. I'd rather that than the other way around. It would make me uncomfortable if somebody said, you know, you have used, you know, my great-grandparent and, you know, you've made them out to be an appalling person and, you know, they weren't necessarily 
But I think that if you if you fall for a character and if you are going to live with them over the course of, I don't know, 300 pages or whatever that is, you really do need to feel for them and you need to feel something about them and you can't feel those things if somebody is literally two dimensions of, you know, kind of nasty. You have to see the totality of a person and the things that may be behind an occasional nasty comment in order to, you know, kind of commit to writing them and, and living with them. So, yeah, you can do it and, you know, lots of people do it and it is done all the time. Uh, but it does, you know, it carries responsibility as well. And there was a research bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, for me, and again, you know, there's no rule here. I'm really not one for rules um, when it comes to writing. You find your own rhythm with it. For me, I'm constantly researching. So I kind of start, you know, as I said, I was looking for something to do with the war, something I didn't know about. I found that word, sea evacuees. Then you're down the rabbit hole of this whole program and what was that and who was involved. The kind of, you know, your macro level, really, I need to get my head around this then I'm always just too excited. So I, I just want to start writing the book because then all these things are popping into my head. So I'm like, you know, sort of regurgitate everything onto the page as my first draft-ish, try to get that down pretty quickly. But and I've learned, I suppose, over the years that I will, I will be going back to, to research the tiniest detail. So you get that first block of what it is, where am I, what's going on? And then every scene, really, you, you probably need to either put in a little placeholder or I, I'm not very disciplined, so I always go and check immediately and then three hours have gone and I've been <laughs> looking at zips and, you know, uh, something totally unrelated to uh, that thing. But it, a tiny detail and it's something that hopefully, the thing with research is hopefully the reader never feels that research on the page. So it should be very light touches, that it just inhabits the story. It feels very natural. There's not sort of a big alarm going off, going, look what clever thing I found when I was researching this book. So it just informs the story. But to me, literally until the last proof edit, when that's your last chance to, to get it right, I can see something and go, oh, did I double check? Could they... Did carnation milk exist in Nigeria? <laughs> Was that a brand? And again, hopefully something a reader just breezes past because they're caught up in the action and the drama. But to the author, it's really important. And to actually to readers, it can be really important because they'll go, well, I know that's not right. Mm. I used to work there. But it's constant for me, yeah. Okay. And I think we've come to the end of this panel. Thank you so much, Emily and Hazel, for giving us an insight into how your mind works and also like the amount of work that goes into creating such valuable pieces of work. So thank you very much. Thank you for great Thank questions. you so much. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.